yeah, today I'm going to be talking about this particular part of my research, which is very medical, um, and thinking about migration, thinking about gender, thinking about kinship, all of the favorite, my favorite aspects of my own research. And I've been working on this paper for a little while now, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions and comments and getting some feedback on it. Um, so I'll begin. Uh, begin actually exactly, this is a, a sign for um, a hospital which is really in, right in the centre of this area of Eastleigh, Little Mogadishu, um, and this is where my little ethno ethnographic vignette begins. The pain shuffle of a woman in labour was unmistakable as Malyun, a 22-year-old Somali woman, slowly, agonisingly entered the small, this small, privately owned hospital in Nairobi. Escorted by her husband, mother, two sisters and a brother, she made her way to the closest bench in the waiting room before heavily slumping against it, not fully sitting down. Her brother approached the reception desk, politely but insistingly asking that she be seen to very quickly. He was waved towards the cashier's window to pay an initial deposit and consultation fee as Malyun was helped to stand upright again as she slowly began her shuffle towards the labour ward. This was not Malyun's first hospital visit of the day. A short time earlier, she had made her way to another hospital in the eastly area of Nairobi, known throughout the Kenyan capital and beyond for its large Somali population. Even that hospital visit had been somewhat delayed due to the popular notion that women who arrive at hospital too early uh, in their labour will be forced to undergo any number of unnecessary interventions. Actually not that similar from the ideas about giving birth in the UK. Um, at the first hospital, Malyun and her family were informed that the baby was in a bad position and therefore a vaginal delivery would be impossible. Unhappy and highly suspicious of this diagnosis, her family had argued with the medical staff before calling a taxi to take them for a second and hopefully more desirable, desirable opinion. That's perhaps a little different from the UK. You don't expect uh, women heavily far into their labours to just to, to get up with difficulty and walk out and, and try somewhere else. But this was uh, an, uh, a common sight, sorry. Uh, in Eastleigh. Following a quick physical examination, the nurse midwife at the second institution told Malyun the same information. The baby could not be delivered vaginally and she would have to undergo a caesarean section. Once again, Malyun refused. Several of her relatives were taken to speak to the matron after the midwives had failed to persuade them to reconsider. The matron, a stout, determined, middle-aged Kenyan woman who had worked in Eastleigh for over a decade, sat Malyun's husband, brother and one of her sisters down in, in her office to explain the situation using her well-worn copy of Miles Midwifery textbook, textbook to illustrate the position of the baby and what the operation would involve. The matron, switching between English and Kiswahili, made her points repeatedly, using different vocabulary combinations in both languages in an attempt to fully explain herself. The brother spoke good English and Kiswahili and translated for the other two. The th three debated amongst themselves in Somali and they wondered whether an obstetric scan would help them to make their decision. Picking up on the English word computer, that which Somalis use to refer to scans, the matron interrupted, telling them that the computer would make no difference because they could tell the position of the baby from the physical examination. After a lengthy discussion, they returned to Malyun and the other family members where the argument continued. Malyun did not want the operation, and neither did her mother or her sisters, who were adamant that she should not have it. Malyun's brother and husband tried to convince them, and eventually Malyun, looking utterly exhausted and in agony, agreed. Up until she was taken into theatre, her mother and sisters tried to convince her to change her mind. Malyun's experience was not unusual. 
and in many similar cases I observed, the labouring woman maintained her refusal, refusal to undergo a caesarean section. For some of these women, the refusal appeared justified when the baby was eventually delivered successfully, albeit often with significant trauma experienced by both the woman and her infant. In many other cases, the charged debates over caesarean section between midwives, patients and their families only came to an end when the baby died. In such cases, the families readily and without exception attributed the death to God's will, and as such, no medical intervention, they argued, would have altered the outcome. Somalis in Nairobi and elsewhere can broadly be described as pronatal. That is, there is a widespread desire for frequent childbearing and large families. Somalia has one of the highest fertility rates in the world, and although religion plays an intrinsic role in shaping reproductive beliefs and practices, it is by no means the only factor. Among the people I spoke to, producing many children was perceived as, an, as a religious requirement, a symbol of wealth, and a continuation of the patrilineal clan, and by extension, the Somali nation. This responsibility to physically and socially reproduce the nation was acutely felt by the women and men coming from what was often perceived as a failed state. Early and frequent motherhood was praised, while contraceptives were publicly demonized, although secretly used by many women, and abortion was rarely spoken of, with the exception of condemning it. In Eastleigh, where people lived in legal ambiguity due to fluctuating and haphazardly enforced refugee encampment policies, reproduction and mothering took on new meanings for Somali women, as I will discuss more further in this paper. Producing and raising children helped women living with everyday insecurity and hostility to establish themselves within transnational kinship networks, which were often essential for physical and economic security and could provide possibilities for onward migration. Why then was a procedure intended to save the lives of women and their infants or reduce the, serious reduce the risk of serious complications so frequently rejected, particularly by women? A caesarean section, as perhaps some of you will have um, experienced yourselves or might have um, witnessed, is a surgical operation in the front wall of the abdomen when a vaginal birth is expected to involve undue risk of harm to the woman or the baby. I'm explaining this because I, I did a, a shorter version of this paper um, to my department in Edinburgh and particularly the men were going, what is this, what is this caesarean section, how does it wear, what? Um, so a little more detail on what it involves and why it is practiced. Caesarean sections. Um, can be planned in advance, for example, uh, if the placenta is lying too low in, within the womb, and blocking the exit, as it were, um, or if the baby is in a, as, as was the case with Malyun, if the baby is in a position such as breech position, which will make childbirth, vaginal childbirth difficult, um, and so a uh, caesarean section is deemed to be safer. Other reasons for caesareans include uh, pre-existing medical conditions, for example, um, high blood pressure, or the age of the mother um, giving birth to her first child, certainly in Scotland, that is, these are some of the main issues that we are dealing with there. And also due to um, particular infections that can be transmitted from mother to child during childbirth. Alternatively, a woman already in labour might be given an emergency caesarean section, perhaps if childbirth isn't uh, progressing fast enough, although it's debatable what that actually means, um, or if the baby isn't getting enough oxygen or if there is heavy bleeding. In Nairobi, many caesarean sections were performed under general anaesthetic, whereas in the UK and many other parts of the world, they are more often performed under regional anaesthetic, so a woman is conscious, but um, she's completely numbed um, all the way down, so she can't feel it. Although it's, you can feel it, but it's not painful. Um, in Nairobi, I observed both vertical and horizontal cuts made across the abdomen and the womb. 
Again, in the UK, the preference is for horizontal cuts because it's believed to heal more effectively and with fewer complications. Um, and one of the main selling points that I've heard among obstetricians and women's he women here is that the the horizontal cut it, it just goes straight across. It's wonderful because once it heals, it's under your bikini line, and you can you can wear a bikini and no one can see it. It's fantastic, which was not so much a concern for the women um, that I was doing my research with. But also, many doctors continue to to practice the vertical one because it's easier from the obstetrician's perspective. So. Um, importantly, caesarean sections are major abdominal, abdominal um, surgery that have lengthy recovery periods and can have serious implications for future pregnancies. As such, in order to understand the refusal by Somali women in Nairobi, we must situate caesarean sections within women's broader reproductive lives and examine the multiple ways in which hopes for the future can be enacted on and through women's bodies in the present. Resistance of caesarean sections is by no means limited to Somalis, but has also been noted among Somalis living in other regions. Research in Sweden among women from East Africa found that the refusal of caesarean sections was one of the primary causes of perinatal death, particularly among Somalis. In their analysis, the reluctance to undergo a caesarean section is rooted firmly in a fear of, quote, uh, a fear, quote, more to do with socioeconomics and poverty than with culture. In other contexts, Caesarean sections as a high-technology intervention are perceived as a marker of modernity and status and can even become normalised, often desired, in contexts in which medical intervention and childbirth are the norm. And I found that this is what a lot of the ethnographic research has focused on is the apparent overuse of caesarean sections in places like Brazil and India in particular. Alexander Edmonds suggests that when interventions such as, child, uh, interventions such as caesarean sections are identified as a form of progress, the refusal can be seen as an act of negligence, whether this is a refusal on the part of the mother and her family or on the part of physicians. And this negligence was certainly the position of many of the doctors and midwives I interviewed who were exasperated by the frequent refusals from their Somali patients and felt both personally and professionally frustrated and constrained. For the physician, physicians I spoke to, this refusal of treatment was firmly perceived as pathological. For them, the refusal of treatment that would likely result in the death of a child was an obvious case of bad mothering. In these situations, women and their families were equally aware that the child might die without surgical intervention, but as many people argued, whether the child lived or died was ultimately in the hands of God. What emerged through interviews and numerous conversations in hospital waiting rooms was a multifaceted fear of the operation itself and of the long-term consequences. Firstly, there was a widespread fear of surgical procedures in general. While discussing this with one friend, he joked, can you imagine what operations are like in Somalia? Would you want one? Um, and then he added in a more serious tone, this is Africa. If someone goes for an operation, you can't be sure they'll wake up. This fear was reflected in many conversations I had with people on the topic of surgery, but was most evident to me in the case of Saido, a young woman who, when I met her, appeared substantially older than her mid-twenties. Saido was living in Somalia when she went into labour with her first child. From her own narrative, her labour was prolonged and the delivery obstructed. It was decided at some point, I'm not sure by who, that she would need to have a caesarean. From the doctors who cared for her in Nairobi, it seemed as if whoever operated on her had little, if any, medical training. Saido's problems during delivery had left her with obstetric fistula, and as a result of the attempted caesarean, she had a gaping wound that stretched across, her ab across the entirety of her abdomen. 
Saido's baby, which would have been her first, did not survive, and Saido struggled to recover. Her family decided to take her to Kenya to receive medical care and brought her to Dadaab refugee camp, where physicians ass assessed her and due to the limited capacity in the refugee camps brought her to Nairobi. The doctors and nurses that cared for Saido remarked to me that they had doubted whether or not she would survive and were amazed at how well she had recovered. It took several surgeries and months in hospital for, before Saido was well enough to leave, but she did recover. However, she will not be able to have children. Whenever I spoke to her, Saido seemed cheerful, remarkably, and only ever spoke about her injuries and her loss in terms of her gratitude towards those who had helped her survive. Although her case was the most extreme that I encountered, it illustrates explicitly why many people had such a strong fear of surgery, and caesareans more specifically. Although she recovered, Saido will never have children, something which will almost certainly have ramifications for her future. Another reaction, and one that was readily evident, was that caesarean sections are considerably more expensive than vaginal deliveries. With all costs included, they could, could it cost in, uh, in, ex in excess of 100,000 Kenyan shillings, which at the time was about £750. Um, vaginal deliveries were roughly a tenth of this, so a, a very big difference in cost. And um, at this point, I should note that most people that I met were using private hospitals. There are two government facilities that were available in and near Eastleigh. One of them is a small, uh, fairly small clinic on 4th Street where there's... Um, People would go for basic health services, for very limited antenatal care, for childhood vaccinations, things like this, or minor medical ailments, but nothing really any more serious than that. The other was, in fact, the biggest maternity hospital, I think, in East Africa, Pumwani Maternity Hospital, which has an absolutely terrible reputation throughout Kenya and beyond. Um, and for many reasons, women preferred and their families preferred to use private facilities where they could really be specific about what kind of care they did and didn't want. Um, and they also were very reluctant to go to government facilities where they, were f they feared any real contact with the Kenyan state. So that's why they were going to these uh, hospitals and paying so much money. Aside from the actual financial cost, there was a widespread suspicion that some hospitals and medical staff might say that a woman required a caesarean section when she did not, purely for the financial gain, while others suspected that it might be a state-led attempt to limit the fertility of Somalis. These suspicions were not confined to caesareans as people frequently second-guessed the diagnosis or prescription of doctors. Although these are valid arguments, I found women and their families to be broadly in favour of biomedical interventions, for treatment, uh, from treatment for infertility to the uptake of pregnancy testing and particular forms of antenatal and postnatal care, as well as the fact that almost all women I spoke to wanted to and did give birth within medical facilities. Somalis in Eastleigh, it appeared to me, were not only willing to undergo medical procedures, they were also willing to pay a great deal of money for them, often gathering hundreds or even thousands of US dollars from across the diaspora to pay for it. And so the question remains, what is so particular about caesarean sections? In order to answer this, we must understand the significance of childbearing to Somali women in Eastleigh. So in this particular area, as Neil mentioned, that's known as Little Mogadishu, Refugees from Somalia, Ethiopia and Eritrea live lives defined by uncertainty. Due to its relative stability, Kenya has long been a major refugee receiving country and it currently hosts refugees from Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, Sudan, South Sudan, DRC um, and many, many other countries. As a result, Kenya has this encampment policy that requires all refugees to live in one of two refugee camps located in the northwest and the east of the country. 
For a multitude of reasons, difficult cramped living conditions in arid and remote parts of the country, uh, insufficient opportunities for education uh, and for livelihoods, widespread insecurity, and in many cases, a desire to not be refugees, many thousands have chosen to live elsewhere in contravention of the encampment policy and in legal ambiguity. Far from a refugee slum, Eastleigh has thrived as a commercial hub for many years. And fueled by rumours of piracy, terrorism and, illegal and other illegal activity, the area, and particularly, particularly the Somalis who live there, have gained a reputation as both wealthy and dangerous. This reputation, in addition to a corrupt police and state system, has left Somalis and other immigrants vulnerable to abuses, ranging from everyday violence, extortion and arrest, to more extensive police crackdowns, mass detention in makeshift camps, particularly we saw that um, last year, um, forced deportations and an increasing number of extrajudicial killings. Coupled with a very large and globally dispersed diaspora, it is perhaps unsurprising that most people I met were desperate to continue their migratory journeys to a third country, ideally in Europe or North America. Many Somalis in Kenya are dependent on the transnational kinship networks that forced migration has produced for their income and survival in the form of remittances sent from relatives in more affluent settings. The ability to migrate is also often dependent on these networks, as people identify a destination and also a visa, which requires sponsorship usually from a relative, as well as the financial means to migrate. Although these networks are essential for everyone, men were often better able to become economically independent, whereas women were more likely to be both financially and socially wholly dependent. Others used more illicit modes of travel, but they were still strategically and financially dependent on their kinship networks. Crossing borders illegally is extremely risky, and the fear of sexual violence and exploitation frequently excluded women from, these op from this option. In this con context of uncertainty, we can see gender emerge as crucial to the ways in which people were able to secure and navigate their own physical and financial security. In Somali culture more broadly, an emphasis on the religious and cultural imperative to produce large families was widespread. For the displaced women I spoke to, producing and raising children was further emphasised as an essential duty in their role as Muslim women, wives and mothers. It is in these crucial roles, I argue, that women were often able to nav navigate their experiences of forced migration. And it is here that we see the significance of repro reproduction in both the present and the future as essential to, the, to women's lives in more complex ways than might have at first been apparent. For many of the women I spoke to, their capacity to produce and raise children was intimately interwoven in their hopes and fears for the future. The importance of childbearing and high fertility was stressed to me throughout my fieldwork, not least by my friend Muna, who took great delight in telling me that although we were the same age, um, we were both 27 at this point, uh, she, was, she had 10 children and was pregnant with her, with her 11th, and I was yet to have one, and she still mocks me now that I have one and she has 13. I'm still, you know, I'm falling quite severely behind. But she used to say to me, I don't know why you white women wait until you are so old to have children. It's not good for you. And if you wait too long, you might not be able to have them at all. After 30, it becomes very hard, especially if you haven't even had one by then. End quote. Muna's reproductive achievements were not only a reflection of her success and status as a mother, they were tangible evidence that she was a good wife, as her husband proudly told me every time the topic of childbearing came up, and therefore a respectable woman capable of producing and caring for a family. 
Through marriage, she had established her own kinship networks, and by producing children, particularly such a large number, she had secured her position within her marriage with her husband, as well as his extended family, all of whom she could reasonably rely on for support in the future, should she need it. Divorce was very common in Eastleigh, but a woman with six, eight or more children stood a far better chance of maintaining the support of her ex-husband and his clan than a woman who had only produced one or two. In cases where the spouses were geographically separated, this was even more acute. As one woman told me during a conversation about her husband's imminent resettlement in America, to America, sorry, I only have two children. I think he'll find another wife there. He'll forget us. Um, and, and it seems at this point that he, this was a, a, quite a number of years ago that um, we had this conversation and he is now in America and he does seem for the most part to have forgotten about her and the children. During interviews, men directly associated their wife's ability to produce children with their degree of love for them. Muna's husband, while reflecting on what a wonderful wife she was, told me, quote, a good wife always wants to provide her husband with children. She takes care of the home, she cares for everyone. That is love. I see my wife is not taking family planning, using contraceptives. She wants all the children God will bless us with. She wants to make me happy. She is disciplined. She will raise the children nicely. That is a good wife, end quote. Others commented that by producing children, a woman directly contributes to her husband's lineage, thereby securing her own position in relation to his kin. By giving birth, women not only recreate themselves as mothers, they also recreate their husbands as fathers, therefore enhancing their status as men. Similarly, women stated that providing children was their duty as a wife, an essential in proving that they did indeed love their husbands. The significance of children to the patriarchal line was particularly evident in homes where the wife lived with her husband's family, a tradition which has been seriously affected by displacement and the dislocation of families. <coughs> Women in this context expressed feeling pressure to have children, and particularly, particularly sons, as they did not feel part of the family until they had done so. These were, they were often expected to participate heavily in household duties and had little position to defend themselves in quarrels between themselves and their husband's female relatives. In one case, I personally observed the shift in attitude towards a young woman with no children when she became the pregnant wife. She went from being described as difficult and hysterical to being pregnant and therefore deserving of special treatment. Um, she actually suffered a number of miscarriages before she had her first child, so it was, it was um, to see her position within that family moved back and forth a little bit. She was pregnant and then she lost the pregnancy um, and became pregnant again. And the sisters, her husband's sisters, uh, who she had pre previously had problems with, were instructed by male relatives to submit in every argument with her when she became pregnant and even more so after she gave birth. In addition, women have commented that having a family of one's own provided, provides the greatest feeling of security. The security with one's father's family is somewhat time limited as a woman is expected to leave when she is married. And there is always a risk that a marriage will fail. Women repeated that if they had children, then it did not matter as much if their husband left them. Roles as daughters and wives could be conceived as impermanent, as fathers and husbands could die, or in the latter case, leave them. But their roles as mothers were perpetual. Once a woman had children, she will always be a mother. And the more children she has, the more people she will be able to depend on as they grow into adults and then have their own children and these, these networks grow and grow. These acts of uh, marital and maternal devotion, although intended to be everlasting, are framed by the physical demands of pregnancy, childbirth, and infant rearing. 
Yet the responsibility was not only on women to reproduce and mothers to care for their children, but for those children and the wider families to care for mothers. As Europe, an unmarried 18-year-old uh, woman told me as we discussed her desire to migrate, quote, mothers are the most important people in our lives. That is what our religion teaches us. Mm -hmm. Do you know someone asked the Prophet Muhammad, who does your first loyalty lie with? And the Prophet answered, your mother. And the second, your mother. And the third, your mother. And the fourth, your father. This is how she told it, with this kind of the dismissal of the, your father at the end. <laughs> Um, she continued, mothers are one, two, and three, always before the fathers. That is why mothers have three times the right to their children. Um, interestingly, this idea about um, referring to the Quran and ideas and, and hadith and rights to children um, was used in some cases. I know where there was a dispute among who um, kept the children after divorce, um, and mothers would use this as a basis to say that the children were supposed to stay with them. <clears throat> love and devotion to mothers was reiterated on a daily basis, and like Europe, many people identified this love as something reinforced by the Quran. The challenges and pain that women face during childbearing and birth, followed by breastfeeding and infant rearing, are seen as only the beginning of a relationship defined by love, sacrifice, and devotion. The reference to loyalty lying with one's mother three times before the father is even acknowledged locates mothers on a hierarchy below God, but above all others. This was further reflected in the frequently quoted hadith that paradise is found at the feet of mothers, which some, um, actually many people I know took this, this very seriously, very literally, and you would find it was not uncommon to see grown men and women massaging their mother's feet or cutting their toenails, very intimate relationships with their mother's feet that I personally do not have with my own mother's feet and um, would be reluctant to have. One man told me, no matter, how much you do for your, no matter how much you do for your mother, no matter how much you work for her or help her, you can never pay her back for everything she endured carrying you. Now, I am certainly not suggesting that women who have had caesarean sections do not endure any pain. Far from it. It's major surgery. There is a very, very long recovery period. But there is a widespread perception that women who had the operation were perhaps not strong enough. Perhaps the love wasn't strong enough for their husband, for their children. And that was the reason why they were, they were perhaps not capable of giving birth naturally, due to some sort of personal, physical, emotional, perhaps spiritual deficiency. And many people raised questions of the woman's suitability as a mother, which raised larger questions of her qualities as a woman. The necessity to procreate was perhaps even more evident in the context of ongoing displacement. Many of my informants were married with their spouse living in another country, and they would frequently travel in order to conceive. My informants had husbands and wives in geographically diverse locations, and as those individuals had greater freedom of movement, they would be the ones to travel to East Lee. My neighbour Sabrine had five children who she lived with, while her husband lived and worked in South Africa making occasional visits to Nairobi to see his family and, when possible, conceive a child with his wife. When I first met her, she was almost completely bedbound due to a long-standing problem with her hips, and she relied heavily on the assistance of her older children and other relatives and friends. Some months later, she, she received an operation as the pain became too much for her to bear. Although she was delighted with this operation and with the, the newfound freedom and uh, range of movement that she had, she was furious by the doctor's instructions that she should not have any more children because her body would not be strong enough to carry the weight or endure the delivery. 
another friend suggested that perhaps five children was enough and she should just listen to the doctor. That was a male friend, actually, interestingly, a, a cousin of hers. Uh, but she was enraged and she said, enough, how can you tell me I have enough? I have a husband and we can have more. Despite continued difficulty in moving around, she was determined that not only was five children insufficient, she knew she was capable of producing more. From Sabrine's perspective, to suggest she was incapable of having more children was to question her capabilities as a mother, wife and woman, and with her husband living so far away, this suggestion could lead to possible strain and difficulties within her marriage. Young women with no children, or only a small number, were the ones who most frequently expressed concern that their husbands would not come back for them, or would forget about them and start new families, as was the case with the woman I mentioned earlier whose husband was resettled to America. In the case of Sabrine, her husband lives in South Africa, and although this allowed him to return more often than those who lived in other continents, one of the purposes of his visits was expressly, uh, as they both told me, to conceive. And so it is evident why Sabrine was concerned that a change in her ability to produce children would affect his visits and their marriage. It is evident that fears of infertility or the inability to produce children can be intrinsically bound to fears for the future of marriage. And among the women I interviewed, this incorporated short and long-term security and possibilities for migration. Women with a rel relatively respectable number of children, at least five or six, were usually more secure in their position than women with few or no children. In this sense, being a mother carried more significance than being a wife, as even after a divorce, as mentioned earlier, the father has responsibilities to support his children, and the greater the number of children, the greater the support. Now, of course, this is an imaginary world where all fathers are wonderful and always, you know, even after divorce, will support all of their children, and that certainly was not the case. But in, in my research, it did seem like the more children a woman had, the more um, reliable either her ex-husband or his extended family would be um, in providing some sort of financial support. So in this pronatalist and uncertain context, it is essential to highlight one further aspect of caesarean sections. During my research, women who had caesarean deliveries were recommended caesareans for all future deliveries. There's this, this common saying, certainly in many parts of the world, still in some parts of the UK and the US, that once a caesarean, always a caesarean. Um, there was no attempt at what are often are of what are called VBACs, virginal birth after virginal birth. That'd be tricky. That's a different paper. Vaginal birth after cesareans, uh, as occur in other contexts. The reason for this is that women who have have had previous cesarean sections are at a higher risk in future pregnancies and deliveries. As you can imagine, if you have repeated surgery. Um, on your abdomen, on your uterus, then it becomes weaker, there's scar tissue, there are uh, a number of complications that can arise, including um, rupture of the uterus, uh, very serious complications. Um, in many parts of the world, women are, uh, women, are, women are perfectly capable of giving birth vaginally after a caesarean, but in, in this context, it, it, it was completely unheard of. I never spoke to anyone who had, had done so. And it, um, once you have had, so the, and there was also this popular uh, understanding, and this is persistent again in many places, that the, there is a very limited number of caesareans, therefore, that you can have. So if it's your first delivery and you're having a caesarean section and all the subsequent ones have to be, there's, people usually understand you can only have a maximum of three or four caesareans. Uh, the most I encountered in my research was six 
cesarean sections. I've heard in other places of, of women having more than that, but there are, the more you have, the more com complications there are. Um, so it was this threat to future fertility, of the, the limiting potential of cesarean sections, that was brought up most frequently by the women that I spoke to. Although degrees of understanding of what the operation involved differed among my informants, every woman I spoke to mentioned that it limited the number of future pregnancies and deliveries a woman can have. And many were very specific that they understood that it meant that you can only have two or three more. So three in total, which is interesting because that's the number, before I did my research, this number, the, the maximum of three caesareans was the same number I hear in the UK, which along with the idea that once a woman turns 30, her fertility is downhill. Um, it's interesting, it's the same here. So the way in which these medical facts, these numbers move around and are in, um, understood in different ways is, I, I found very interesting. Anyway, as one woman stated, quote, if it's your first baby and you have to have a caesarean, then you can only have a few more. It doesn't matter so much if you already have six or seven children, but if you don't have any or maybe one, then it's a problem, end quote. Although a great deal of feminist literature on the topic of reproduction more broadly has been concerned with women taking control of their bodies and their reproductive capacities, this, to a certain degree, assumes that pregnancy and birth can be controlled and their outcomes predetermined. Uh, uh, many, many anthropologists and other social researchers have really questioned uh, this and have noted that, that this perception of control is particularly apparent in the antenatal experiences of affluent women when compared with those of the working class, uh, with working class or lower status women. Women in Eastleigh were highly conscious of their very limited control over their lives, reproductive, migratory or otherwise. Yet in the case of caesarean sections, women and their families were in a position in which they could make decisions that could potentially entail significant <clears throat> impact on their reproductive futures. More specifically, they were in a perceived position of control, albeit one that must always be tempered in the light of God's will. Put simply, if God intended for a child to live or die, it would, regardless of any medical interventions. Yet caesarean sections present a way in which women, through refusal, can maintain some control over their reproductive capacities and futures in an otherwise precarious context. Technical interventions in the practices of reproduction can illuminate the complexities that occur when kinship and science merge. In pronatalist context, this is particularly vivid as we see the politics of women's bodies as crucial to the reproduction of both families and nations emerge as a site of private and public concern. Pronatality, situated within a context of religious nationalism, can naturalise particular reproductive interventions, as illustrated in Susan Kahn's work on IVF in Israel, and as was evident in Eastleigh, where being a good Somali woman required becoming a mother capable of raising good Somali children. In contrast, research in Eastleigh has highlighted how caesarean sections can be politically framed as antinatalist, and that direct, because they directly limit national growth by limiting the number of children um, a woman can have. Motherhood, and particularly reproduction, can therefore be seen as central to attempts to mitigate risk and manage the future. Jennifer Johnson Hanks suggests that rather than thinking about agency as the implementation of prior intentions and rational choice in order to achieve future plans, people in contexts of uncertainty engage in what she terms judicious opportunism. She argues, quote, the challenge is not to formulate a plan and implement it regardless of what comes, but to adapt to the moment, to be calm and supple, recognising the difference between a promising and an unpromising offer, 
end quote. Refusal of caesarean sections can therefore be seen as a means to maintain possibilities for the future, rather than acting to achieve a specific one. In Eastleigh, the future may depend on God's will, but women were acutely aware of the divine role of motherhood, the possibilities it can present, and the, the fate that awaits those women who fail to attain it. Following Johnson and Hanks, I suggest that it is useful to think of reproductive interventions and Islamic fatalism less as a concern with knowing things that will happen, rather it is the complex awareness of knowing the possibilities of what can and cannot happen. Caesarean sections, I argue, are vehemently res resisted precisely because they crystallise a certainty of what cannot happen. A woman cannot have more than a limited number of future deliveries. They are an act in the present that radically alters possibilities for the future. This can perhaps be better understood if we situate it within women's broader reproductive lives. Beginning with female circumcision, an act that I would suggest is equally concerned with reproductive futures. Pharaonic circumcision, which was almost universally practiced amongst the women I was working with, where external flesh, including the labia minora and majora and the clitoris are removed and the remaining skin is sewn together, in some ways mirrors the act of caesarean section in that the body is open, opened and then closed. Both leave scars, an indication of past acts and future potentials. Pharaonic circumcision is conducted on girls, usually between the ages of four and 10 years old. The reasoning for circumcision that was most frequently cited to me during my research was that it prevents women and girls from becoming sexually active by curbing their potential for sexual desires. This was intended to prevent women in engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, which in itself would be shameful, but perhaps more importantly could produce children that both ruptured processes of patriarchal lineage and could not be recognised as legitimate in the eyes of God. Circumcising girls before they became sexually aware was therefore intended to project, protect the future of the girl, her family, her future husband's lineage, and their future children. With so much emphasis placed on female chastity and reproductive purity, it is perhaps surprising that divorce and marriage are so common. Remarriage are common. A woman might contribute children to a number of lineages throughout her life. Therefore, reproductive capacities cannot be a focus on individual reproductive events or even the capacity to reproduce, but the continual process of repeated childbearing, birth and rearing. The ultimate concern is that a woman produces children that are legitimate in the eyes of God. Um, a lot of men I interviewed said that it was best to marry a divorcee who had a couple of children already um, because you knew, she, basically you knew she worked, right? She was capable of producing children and having them, therefore she was a good option. Um, so, uh, whereas if, if, interestingly, if a woman had far more children, they were less, slightly less desirable. But to go back to circumcision, vaginas, as the visible exterior of essential interior processes, are therefore a central focus for future prosperity, extending well beyond the individual. This re-emerges periodically at marriage when a woman becomes sexually active and is opened, and once again at childbirth when she is opened even further. Like closing through circumcision, both of these openings are conducted by others, by her husband during sex, unless he is incapable and she therefore must be opened surgically by a doctor or by non-medically trained, uh, usually women, uh, often the same ones who perform the circumcisions and later by a medical professional or birth attendant in the form of episiotomy during childbirth. These prescribed acts of opening and closing are located in one particular bodily area, which is where caesarean sections notably differ. 
Opening the abdomen, abdomen relocates processes of reproduction, both social and biological, that have occurred at, in, and through the vagina since childhood. Now, there is a notable distinction between the meanings of an act and an intimate bodily understanding of the act itself. Both the abdomen and the vagina are visible to very few people throughout life, and particularly in adulthood. People are aware that circumcision takes place, and many women have witnessed it in addition to their own personal experiences of it. Without exception, no man I spoke to had seen circumcision performed. In the case of caesarean sections, people had a general idea of what takes place, but no first-hand account of it. Um, as I mentioned, women were often under general anaesthetic, uh, and, and it was extremely unusual for there to be um, anyone else in the operating theatre with them, other than me. Um, like other highly technical interventions, caesarean sections as an act were shrouded by a wall of medical obscurity. In my experience, this mattered very little to the people who encountered it. They were more concerned, as was the case with many medical therapies, with what it did rather than how or why it did it. In this case, the primary concern was that it limited future births. It is for this reason that I would urge caution in drawing together the opening and closing of circumcision and caesareans too closely. The concern for the people I spoke to was not about an abstract anthropological analysis of the opening and closing of bodies, but with the opening and closing of future possibilities. In this paper, I have attempted to address the ways in which women and their families attempt to gain control over their lives, and specifically their reproductive lives through the refusal of caesarean sections, in a context in which they readily acknowledge the limits of their control. The requirement that women bear several children in order to be considered good wives and mothers informs why caesarean sections might be so emphatically refused. To lose one child, if God wills it, is less catastrophic than losing the ability to bear many more as a result of surgery. In processes of precarious migration, a threat to future fertility can be understood as a threat to a woman's social position and security. Women's reproductive decisions have to be situated within a broader context of forced migration, uncertainty and insecurity, and reproductive capacities are often central to their ability to negotiate the challenges they face. The decision to refuse caesarean sections in East Lee were not driven by straightforward socio-economic concerns, as other researchers have suggested, but rather by women's anxieties surrounding security and prosperity and grounded in at the intersection of gender, Islam, lineage and a broader concept of the Somali nation. I'll end it there. Thank you.